I was a teenager in the 80s. And one of the things that got really, well, it was, it was cool before that, but one of the things that got really cool was skateboarding and extreme sports. And anybody who knows anything at all about skateboarding and Tony Hawk might be familiar with the word poser. Raise your hand if you're familiar with the word poser. Wow, good. I didn't realize there was that many extreme sport athletes here at Brandywine Grace. If you're not familiar with the word poser, it was a derogatory term in that extreme sports community. So surfing, skateboarding, snowboarding. A poser was someone who tries to fit in to a profile that they really aren't. So it was someone who looked the look, but really didn't have any skin in the game. So it was someone that maybe bought a nice skateboard and walked around with a nice skateboard, but couldn't do anything with the skateboard. Poser. One of the important values of the extreme sports community is whether you are a phony or whether you're for real. It's very valuable to them. They have no time for phonies. No time for fakes. They're looking for genuineness. Looking to see if you're for real. That actually connects to what Jesus is saying in this passage. Finding the crucial point of a text in your Bible can often be discovered by beginning with a question. A question you should ask when you read your Bible, when you read a section of Scripture, is what is the flavor of this text? You've tasted it. It was just read to you. What was the flavor of the text, though? You should have some thoughts coming to your mind. Is it a happy feeling that you get from this text. I'm talking about the flavor. I'm not talking about the implications or the results. I'm talking about the, the flavor of the text. If you were paying attention, if you could understand what was happening here, the flavor of this text is tense. It's an argument. Jesus has been doing some teaching around the Feast of the Tabernacles, and this is response to his teaching. And it's the result of that response is an argument, a very intense argument. Like it ends with people picking up stones to kill him. You, you see, do you feel that? If you, if you didn't feel that, look back again at the text because you should feel that the, well, this is a tense one. This is uncomfortable. Jesus in an argument, among whom is he arguing? 
Who's his argument with? It's the Pharisees. But I'm going to show you something that I'll bet a lot of you have not seen. If you remember the end of last week's sermon in which Jesus was preaching and teaching that he was the light of the world, after that teaching was complete, John told us something. It was actually pretty amazing. In verse 30, John told us that while Jesus was teaching that he is the light of the world, that many people believed in him. Look at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. Who is Jesus in an argument with? All those many that had believed in him. That's going to unlock the purposes of this text. And here is the purpose of this text. This is what I believe John, the writer of this gospel, is seeking to get done. This is what I believe Jesus is seeking to get done. It's critical to evaluate the genuineness of your faith. John told us the purpose of his gospel. In chapter 20, verse 23, I've written all these things, he said, so that you might believe or have faith in Jesus and enjoy life in his name. So John is concerned that people really examine the extent to which they would say they truly believe in Jesus. It's critical to evaluate the genuineness of your faith. It's critical if you're being baptized this morning, four people being baptized. It is critical that they evaluate the genuineness of their faith. And if after listening to this sermon, they decide that their faith is not genuine then they should not be baptized. It's critical. If you've been following Jesus for a long time, I'm looking at you. That you, too, evaluate the genuineness of your faith. Have you been a Christian so long that you assume certain things about yourself and read the Bible for other people? Don't do that. Don't do that. It's critical. Everyone in here, it's critical. 
this category of people that Jesus is speaking to right now were the many who believed. Posers never identify themselves as posers. It takes someone else to do that for them. If you had said to the many who believed, is your faith for real or is it phony? What do you think they would have said? For real. It takes the words of Jesus to bring x-ray insight into the realities of their faith, of your faith, your situation, your validity. Is your faith phony or is it for real? That's the organizing question. I wish that I could do this, and maybe I could if I've spent enough time doing it. I wish that I could create an app that allowed you to read your Bible with your Bible not, with not without your head over your Bible, but with your Bible over your head. The Bible is the only book that should be writ- read with it over you, not with you over it. You think we're reading the Bible. The Bible's reading us. God has something that he wants to accomplish in us. And one of the things he's doing is he's examining the genuineness of our faith. I broke my finger, many of you know, about a year ago, uh, badly. Dropped a dumbbell on it and nearly amputated it off. But what appeared to be the greatest problem was that my finger was hanging off and they had to sew it back on. When I went for the x-ray, though, a week later, we discovered that the fact that my finger was hanging the skin needed to be repaired was not my greatest problem. It took an x-ray to show that the tip of my finger was actually a quarter inch removed from the rest of the bone. And it still is, so I can gross you out by wiggling my finger. It's not attached. It took an x-ray, though, to reveal the seriousness of the situation. You couldn't see it. The Bible x-rays our hearts. It tells you what's real and it tells you what's true. We don't x-ray the Bible. The Bible x-rays us. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he said to the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Today, friends, 
is the uncomfortable experience of an examination. Some of you say, oh no, I love examinations. I love exams. But you're the rare person. I love a little pressure. I love the stress of an exam. Like a real exam, like a pass-fail, like fail and you don't move forward kind of exam. That's what this exam is. This is a life and death exam that Jesus is administering. This is serious, and so it's uncomfortable. But the Bible, just like Paul told the Corinthians, it, it calls on us to regularly examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Let's allow Jesus' words to search us, though it may be uncomfortable that we might critically evaluate the genuineness of our faith. I want to point out that there are two marks of genuine faith. Just two we'll pull from this section of Scripture. The marks of genuine faith. The first mark of genuine faith, sincere faith, is staying power. Staying power. Jesus says that right away. So Jesus, verse 31, said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, when we talk about these mark, a mark of genuine faith, and we talk about this idea of staying power, we should have been, probably, as readers of John's gospel, more cautious about verse 30 than maybe we were. We got excited when the verse said, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. But if we were careful readers of John's gospel, we would have been more cautious about their faith than maybe we were. Do you remember in chapter 2? In chapter 2, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus was teaching. He was in Jerusalem, it says. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, it says many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, it says, didn't entrust himself to them. In other words, there was something about their faith that Jesus felt like, mm, doesn't smell right. They like the things I do, but they're not really following me for who I am. And then, in the end of chapter 6, when Jesus was teaching that he was the bread of life, verse 64 says, after this... Many of his disciples, we'll go back to verse 64, but there are some of you, he says, for who do not believe. And he said in verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. And all these people that had professed belief in him, it says in verse 66, after this, many of his, what does he describe them as? Disciples turn back and no longer walked with him. If there was a disciple that heard Jesus teach 
And in the result of meeting Jesus and hearing him teach, put his faith in him and said, yeah, count me in as a disciple. And then that disciple is, is characterized after this. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. If that can happen who's someone who was in the presence of Jesus and heard Jesus preach and saw his miracles, can I say... Can I challenge you? Can you allow the word of God to challenge you that that could be true of someone here today? Little hint. If you're nodding yes and you're actually fearful of that, that's good. If you're thinking... That could never possibly be true of me. Will you please keep listening? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus, right here, right now, in this scripture, makes a distinction between those who are genuine disciples and those who are not. He makes a distinction between those whose faith is for real and those whose faith is phony. What is the necessary condition for being regarded as one whose faith is genuine? It's right here. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if, we're going to get the condition, if you... Abide in my word. You are, truly in my, you are truly my disciples. What's the necessary condition? Remaining in his word. Remaining in the truth. Abiding. Actually, the word could capture this idea of holding on to truth. You're holding on to Jesus. You're holding on to his word. It's one of the marks of a true disciple. Remaining in the truth. Abiding in the truth. Or another way of saying it, staying power. There are those who falsely think that they're believers in Christ. And Jesus is giving you an indicator, necessary condition. You have to, be, you have, to have staying power. If you don't have any staying power, you shouldn't convince yourself that you are true believers. Jesus said every true believer, everyone who is genuine in their faith, a sincere faith in Jesus will be marked by this. An abiding in his word, an abiding in his truth, a staying power. There are those who falsely proclaim they believe. There are those who fickly proclaim they believe. These are type that give up from the start. Or in the middle of the race, when the race gets hard, they turn away. But true believers persevere to the finish line. Do you remember Jesus in the other gospels taught a parable, the parable of the soils? parable of the soils, he said, some, it's like the word falls and some spring up quickly on rocky soil, but then the sun comes out, scorches it, the worries of the world, and, it, and, and we realize that they weren't really real. They never really took root. It looked like it, though. 
Jesus is saying that these many who had believed in him are shown to be the rocky soil type. These believers, which he, John refers to them as believers, they were temps. Temporaries. They weren't legit. Because they didn't have staying power. Temporary power. Temporary disciples. They believe what Jesus says up to a point. But at some point, they're not all in. And it gets exposed, doesn't it? At some point, they're not all in. So the question you should be asking yourself is, at some point, are you all in? Like Paul would say, I, all my chips are in. If this ends up being false, if Jesus ends up being a fraud, well, then I'm the biggest fool in the world because I'm all in. What kind of disciple are you? Are you the all-in type? Or are you the, I'm just going to play a few of my chips and hold on to some. That's the temporary type. Doesn't have staying power. The Navy SEALs have something called the 40% rule. Have you ever heard of that? I love this kind of stuff. You guys know that I was in the military and I love thinking about these kinds of things. But the Navy SEAL's 40% rule is based on some science, I think. But this is the 40% rule. The 40% rule is when your mind is telling you you're done. You're really only 40% done. When you're, my, when you're doing something physically strenuous and you feel like I couldn't go one inch further, you know you actually could. Your body actually could go further. Now, God's done some interesting things. He's designed, designed our bodies to actually shut off when you think you're going too hard so that your mind starts to say, oh, don't go any further. Don't go any further. That's going to be real tiring. That's going to hurt. So you shut off. You begin to say in your mind, and mind's a powerful thing. When your mind says you can't do it, you ain't going to do it. That's why you hear mind over matter, right? You got to get somewhere in your mind that your body says, I can't do it anymore. The Navy SEALs say, when you get to that point where you say, I can't go another step, they say, you've only, gotten, you've only reached 40% of your capacity. Of course you can go further. It's this idea of grit. It's this idea of staying power. It's this idea of moving forward even when you feel like you don't want to or you can't. Now, I want to, this is the mistake that you make whenever you use the Navy SEALs in a sermon illustration. Because everybody says, oh, I ain't no Navy SEAL. 
being a Navy SEAL is really hard. You know, they take like, I was reading, like the percentage of people that they take, 6% of the people who apply to be Navy SEALs, so these are people that think they meet the requirements to even enter in. 6% of them actually get accepted. You know how many make it? Of that 6%, not even one quarter of them make it through the first bit of training, like 25 weeks of training. So, so here's the challenge. You all say, well, you know, if he's, if he's expecting everybody to be a Navy SEAL Christian, you know, I'm not, I'm not that kind of person. I'm not highlighting the Navy SEAL as a super Christian. What I'm highlighting is the value of this idea of grit, that when you can't go one step further, when you feel like you can't go on, staying power is the person that gets up and says, Jesus, I feel so tired. I feel like I can't go on. I have no desire in my heart to obey you. In fact, I feel gripped with a desire to disobey you. So I'm asking, would you fill me with your spirit? Would you help me to do what I don't want to do and give me the staying power that is indicative of someone who has genuine faith in you? You like that? Good. It's this belief in the power of Christ to keep you moving towards Jesus when you feel like you're at your weakest. Jesus is not preaching power outside of himself. He's preaching the power that comes from genuine faith in him to help you to do hard things. What does staying power look like? Remaining in his word. What does that look like? Here it is. Just jot these down and, and evaluate your life. What does staying power look like? It looks like someone who, as it relates to God's word, obeys it. It looks like someone who's seeking to understand it better. Every time you read God's word, you're looking at it and saying, oh, I never saw that before. I didn't realize that. Well, I haven't been doing that. You're obeying it. You're seeking to understand it better. You're finding it more precious than anything else. When I write out my plan for the day, one of the first things I put into my day is my time with the Lord. And I label it something. I label it prizing Christ. I get up in the morning and one of the first things that I do is I prize Christ. Why do I label it that way? Because I'm finding Jesus as a greater treasure and a greater prize than anything this world all has to offer. So I'm finding the word precious. I'm finding it more controlling. I'm looking at the word and saying, is this what controls the way I think, believe, act, speak? Or, or is something else controlling me? And all those things are true even when the world around me opposes it. That's what staying power looks like. Are you abiding in Christ? Are you a gritty disciple? Do you have staying power? What does the x-ray of your heart show? One of the marks of genuine faith in Jesus is staying power. Now, we're going to continue with the examination. I want to prepare you. 
the examination is going to get more uncomfortable. I guess you, you are free to get up and go if you want to. But the examination is going to get more uncomfortable. The ones who believed turned out to be, I'm going to give you a list from this scripture. The ones who said they believed in Jesus, the many who believed, they turn out to be slaves to sin, verse 34, indifferent to Jesus, verse 37, children of the devil, verse 44, liars, verse 55, and guilty of mob tactics, verse 59. They were the ones who believed. Most sensitive preachers don't like to preach the uncomfortable. It's way more fun to get up and be funny and to have you guys all laughing. But Jesus isn't being funny in this particular passage. I do believe Jesus was funny, and I believe he was fun to be around. But when it came to matters of life and death, he gives it to you straight. It's critical that we evaluate the genuineness of our faith. The first mark was staying power. The second mark of a genuine faith is a flourishing freedom. Flourishing Freedom. Now these verses, one writer, one commentator said this, these verses represent a damning indictment of human nature. This is not a good picture of humanity here. Jesus claims to set them free. That claim to set them free carries the negative implication that prior to their response to Jesus, they had been in bondage, spiritual bondage. Bondage to what? What were they in bondage to? Sin. Verse 34, they were in bondage to sin and Jesus has presented himself, John has presented Jesus as the eternal son of God who is the only one qualified to break that bondage. Their true father, we're told, is not God but the devil. They have no room for Jesus' word in their hearts, verse 37. They're ready to kill him, verse 37. They don't love Jesus, although he's come from God, verse 42. They're unable to hear what he's saying to them, that's verse 43. They refuse to believe him even though they can't prove him guilty, verses 45 and 46. They show the devil's twin characteristics, lying and murdering. And verse 47 we're told they don't belong to God. In his unveiling of the human heart, Jesus reaches beyond the fruit, which is the specific acts of sin, and he digs down to the root, which is the cause of sin. It's what the Bible sometimes refers to as the sinful nature. We can explain the sinful nature very easily. Listen, we don't become sinners because we commit sins. We commit sins because we're sinners. That's the sin nature. 
We don't become sinners. We're not born innocent. And then as soon as we commit our first sin, we become sinners. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you and I commit sins because of our identity, because of who we are apart from Christ. Our hearts have a sin orientation. Our hearts have a sin inclination. And when Jesus begins to tell those many believers the truth about their hearts, they get very offended. They start to squirm. They start to hate him. They liked him a few minutes ago. But they start to squirm when he says, listen, this is true about your hearts. You're in bondage to sin. I'll set you free. I can set you free. But you got to acknowledge that you're in desperate need of me. And they don't like Jesus messing with their good opinion of themselves. You and I don't like that either. You don't like that. Have you ever tried to show someone where they're struggling with sin? You ever done that? I'm a pastor. I do that. And I'm telling you, I have been sat across from people that I thought were my friends only to have them spin their head as I began to tell them that this is not in keeping with God's word. I remember one particular time I was trying to share with an older woman, it was an older woman, and I was trying to help her see, I wanted to help her see her need for Jesus, that she could be set free for some things, and I was just trying to help her see some things, and I was, I had written them out, we were looking at them together. She couldn't even look, like, she's biting her nails, like, she couldn't even look me in the eyes, like, it was so true, but she was literally squirming in her chair, unwilling to identify, just to, I don't want that to be true about me. I can relate to that. I don't want it to be true about me either. But when you get to that place where you can say, you know what, but that is true about me, the light of Christ can come in and rescue you. But Jesus is bringing you to that place where you have to be able to say, well, that is true about me. I'm in bondage to sin. But we don't like it. Great quote I read this week. Reinhold Niebuhr said, no amount of contrary evidence seems to disturb humanity's good opinion of itself. <laughs> Jesus' opinion on human nature has always been able to be abundantly verified. He knows the real you. He's not faked. Now, why would Jesus be so ruthless in revealing the inner workings of people's hearts? Like, Jesus, go easy. Why you got to be so ruthless, Jesus? Turn that x-ray down, Jesus. I don't like what I see, Jesus. Why you got to show me that? Because he wants to set you free. And anyone who's been set free by, by Christ has it free indeed. He wants you to experience flourishing freedom, but he's got to show you the problem that you might actually experience his grace. Who's with me? Why does he unveil the hidden level of spiritual rottenness in these easy believers? Why does he do it? 
Because this group, church, this is where this challenges us. Because this is a group of people that consider themselves believers. Hello? I'm sitting right now in a group of people who many of you consider yourself believers. And so what Jesus does is something I can't do. He shines the light into your real heart. And he says, is your faith genuine or not? This, this was a word not even for people out there. This was a word for people who all gathered and said, I'm a believer. So Jesus works hard to help people see, to help religious people see that they need a true savior because they're in bondage to sin no matter what it looks like on the outside. If you ignore Jesus unveiling the real enemy of your soul, you invite disaster. Listen, earnest practice and disciplined devotion to religion and the plotting of murder and the embracing of lies are evidently not incompatible. These guys were adamant about their religious credentials. They were energetic in their works of piety. They were participating in a religious festival right here, right now. At the same time, they're speaking so disrespectfully to Jesus, calling him a demon, calling him a Samaritan, plotting to murder him. Listen, church, religion is no guarantee of real righteousness. Church attendance is no guarantee of a sincere faith. You might be making yourself feel better. Jesus will never be an addition to your natural attainments. He's never going to be a part savior who complements your personal achievements. He's either your whole savior or he's not. All right, I got to move. Give me just one minute with my notes. We're going to baptize some people. A few more points, a few more sentences here. Over against this bondage of sin, Jesus presents himself as the one who offers a new freedom. It's personal. If the Son sets you free, it's, his, it's Jesus giving you that freedom. It's personal. He did it for you. It's a gift, not an inherited right. Darren pointed that out this morning when we started to sing. It's not something that you have inherited. It's not something that you get because your parents are Christians. It's not something that you get because you go to church. It's not because you hang around kind of nice people. It's not anything that you get because it's inherent in yourself. It's the gift of Christ that comes outside of you. Aren't you glad he's given you that gift? His freedom is eternal, not temporary. Jesus is the eternal son. He lives forever, and his gift connects us with him in union forever within the eternal life of God. Aren't you thankful, church, for that kind of freedom? 
His freedom is expressed in obedience to him as a response to the great freedom that he purchased for you through his sacrifice. It's a response. It doesn't earn you. It's expressed in obedience, not in independence. The recipient of God's free grace becomes a loving, obedient child within God's family. Is that you? Don't misunderstand true freedom. Carson says, true freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please. It's the liberty to do what we ought. And it's genuine liberty because doing what we ought now actually pleases us. I just want to make one more comment. And J. Russ and those that are being baptized can get ready and Darren in the band. I just want you guys, there's implications to this freedom. I called it a flourishing freedom. I think there's many here that actually are true believers in Christ, but you're not experiencing the freedom that Christ purchased for you. You're not flourishing in that freedom. There's actually psychological implications to the freedom that Jesus has purchased for you. The scripture tells us, and those that are being baptized, the scripture tells us that just like Jesus died, we died to the reign of sin altogether. Proof? Paul says that we now walk in newness of life. Because we've been raised with him just as Christ was raised. Now some of you think that means you'll one day be raised with him. But Paul's saying, if you're in Christ right here, right now, you died Your old self died and your new self has been raised in power and you're walking in newness of life. When do you start walking in newness of life? Right here, right now. This is what happens to those who are in Christ. This is the freedom. You are completely out of the sphere of rain and death that you used to live under. And now you've been removed from that sphere and now you live under the sphere of and reign of grace and Christ. Freedom. Completely out of one sphere and completely in another. Maybe you thought you were kind of one foot in both. You can't be. You can't be completely in one kingdom and completely in another. You are either completely in Christ or you are completely outside of Christ. And you can be in Christ. Just believe in his name and have the eternal life that he has brought you. We have died to the reign of sin and death once and for all, but now we're walking in newness of life. That's freedom. If Jesus has set you free, you're no longer under the reign of sin and death, but you are now forever under the reign of his grace. And so you're living, flourishing in that freedom. We're under the powerful reign of grace, and grace is so powerful that sin has been defeated. Somebody say amen. Grace is so powerful that sin has been defeated. Grace is so powerful that death has been defeated. Grace is so powerful that the devil has been defeated. Grace is so powerful that hell has been defeated, and Jesus is victorious. And we are free. Examination over.